Hi, welcome to Wise Podcast. I'm Stefan Dandono, your host, and today we've got Nick. Nick, what is solutionism? Solutionism is the idea that we can solve complex, sometimes intractable, sometimes long-standing social problems with quick technical fixes. Nicholas King is a thought leader in the areas of public health policy, ethics, and epistemology. He is an associate professor in the Biomedical Ethics Unit in the Department of Social Studies of Medicine at McGill University. Problems like poverty, like low educational attainment, like uh, racial discrimination in housing, with some kind of technical intervention, uh, an app, a new technology, an algorithm, some artificial intelligence that doesn't address the root cause of the problem, which may be rooted in complicated social interactions, discrimination, years, decades, centuries worth of discrimination in some cases, with a simple fix that will immediately solve the problem. What's the problem with solutionism? Good question. There's no inherent problem with solutionism because sometimes we can actually fix really difficult problems with simple technological solutions. I'll give you an example. Um, infectious diseases like cholera, like yellow fever, uh, like polio, like smallpox afflicted humans for millennia. Uh, the reasons that people contract these diseases can be very, very complicated. They have to do with the environments they live in. They have to do with the foods that they eat, their immune systems, all sorts of stuff, exposure to different kinds of insect vectors. And it would be really, really, really difficult to address all of these things. Um, sometimes you need to do these complicated solutions like building sewage systems to provide clean drinking water, draining swamps. But sometimes you can just come up with an antibiotic or a vaccine that will, in a snap, take care of that problem. That's the upside of solutionism. Mm. Sometimes, in very limited circumstances, you can find a technological fix. But a lot of times, you cannot. Mm. And I think the problem with solutionism is once we have a few successes, we start to see the world in a way that we think that every major problem somewhere out there, there's this little technological fix that if we just seize on it, we'll be able to solve those problems. And we'll be able to solve the problem without addressing the root causes. And often, you can solve one of the sort of epiphenomena, the surface problems, you can take care of that, but the root causes are still there and they'll lead to other problems down the road. They'll resurface as other problems which solutionists will use to then try to solutionize again. Exactly. And sometimes our solutions can lead to other problems. So again, antibiotics, great. Mm. They have helped a lot, but they lead to antibiotic resistance. So now we've invested a lot of money in a solution. That solution leads to negative externalities or leads to, leads to new problems. And now we have to keep reinvesting in these same problems that we have created. So again, there's good sides and bad sides. Um, but I think that especially in our current age, we have this great undying faith that we can solve really difficult, what are often called wicked problems with quick technological fixes. So what's the solution to solutionism? Great point. Um, 
I think there are several ways of addressing solutionism. One is simply pointing it out. Mm. So I'm not the first or fifth or 50th person to point this out. The idea of solutionism actually comes from a book mm. uh, on solutionism. In earlier areas, people called it technological fixes or technical fixes. Mm. But I think we need to keep talking about this. Mm. I think that, you know, point number one is to keep talking about the fact that there is this ideal of solutionism and that it can lead to unintended or negative consequences. When I say talk about, I mean talk about it in the public sphere. I mean educate students uh, at all levels, university, high school, graduate school, all the places we are training people in the skills to provide solutions, we should simultaneously be training them about the possibility of unintended consequences. Mm. Um, I think the second thing is, one of the reasons we often get solutionism is because a lot of the people who are technologically adept or skilled at particular technologies come from a very narrow group of humanity. They tend to be extremely well-educated. Mm. They tend to be elite in some way. Very often they are white, male, high socioeconomic status. I think the more people we have, the more people who have access to technological skills, the more likely you're going to bring different perspectives into these problems and foresee the possible kinds of unintended consequences. Mm. Because a lot of times those unintended consequences are consequences for very particular kinds of people. Mm. So a solution will be proposed by elites, and because of their background, they won't foresee the possible negative consequences for socially or economically marginalized people. Mm. Those socially or economically marginalized people will often foresee those negative consequences. And their ability to be at the table of proposing and implementing these solutions will, I think, forestall some of these negative consequences. Is part of the solution bringing context to the solutionists or teaching solutionists about context? I think it's both. Okay. You know? Uh, and I've been, uh, in my, in my academic work and in my teaching, I've done both. Um, so point number one, bring context to the people with technical skills. Uh, I think this is absolutely necessary. I think anyone, for example, who's getting a computer science degree, anyone who's going to be a web developer or an app developer or a data scientist or a programmer should learn during their training about the importance of the contexts that they will be operating in. If you're going to be a data scientist, you need to understand about the context out of which your data emerges. Mm. And also the context for the results that you produce, for the apps that you develop, for whatever it is that you're going to do, the context that that's going to wind up in. Uh, so I think absolutely you need to do that. And... Um, and, and you need to um, integrate that into their education. And I think we're already starting to do that. Um, you can see a parallel in things like uh, training of doctors and health professionals, where you know earlier in the 20th century, even into the late 20th century, we thought of medical training as training in the fundamental science and physiology of human beings. And that's certainly important. But in the last 20 or 30 years, you've seen a much greater shift towards training doctors to appreciate the context that their patients live in, uh, the environmental, social, even political and economic context, and how that impacts both their health 
and their ability to become healthier. The second part is, as you say, uh, bringing other people to the table. And I think this is, this is also just as important, if not more important. And I think we're a little behind in this respect. What do I mean by other people? Uh, I mean just about everybody, right? I think that in the 21st century, understanding technologies like data science, like artificial intelligence, like the increasing role of algorithms in almost every aspect of our life is as important as understanding what a computer is, as understanding what a phone is. These are basic prerequisites for living and working in the world we have, and in particular, basic prerequisites for anyone who wants to change the world for the better. And unfortunately, I think that often in education, especially in higher education, we have this division that creates a gap on one hand, we have the people who that we teach these technological skills to, the computer scientists, um, the people who are going to get into programming or data science. And then on the other hand, a lot of the people who are interested in changing the world, they study things like political science or history or anthropology or sociology, which is great. What I really think needs to be done is we need to bridge that gap one way is bringing contextual-based thinking to, say, a computer scientist. But the other way is to tell people who are sociologists, anthropologists, historians, interested in getting out there and changing the world, hey, you need to understand some of the basics of data science, of programming, so that you're not intimidated by it, so that when you're out there in the world and you are thinking maybe of coming up with solutions of some sort, you can engage creatively and critically with the people who are going to be doing this. So, so I really do see this as working on that bridge between this over this gap from two different directions. I want to come back to this solutionist problem. Now is, because it, it seems to me that you've got kind of, well, in my mind, you've got two, two issues. You've got the team itself because solutionism is not in and of itself problematic. It's maybe a common way or a, techy way or trendy or it's kind of like a flashy way of doing it is developing a new app, uh, new software, a new kind of gizmo gadget that does something because it's cool and you get a Kickstarter campaign, so on and so forth. Now, you've got the team thing, which is the solutionism, which is bringing diversity within the solutionism perspective. Is there a solutionist process 2.0? Because you're also referring to, well, getting people to talk to each other. Well, that's not just the team. That is like, well, you have to organize the context in which you've got a data scientist that also talks about or talks with or talks, communicates with other people. And that to me is a process. I think actually, if I had to choose between one of those two, I'd go for the team approach, mm. right? So let's, let's think about a specific example. So one well-known example of the perils of solutionism is uh, the problem of sentencing and bail algorithms in the United States. Uh, so in the U.S. criminal justice system, there's been a longstanding problem of when people are arrested and they go before a judge, and the judge decides on whether they should be set free, whether they should be put in jail, and there should be a bail set, uh, they, they are often, or sometimes at least, discriminatory. Right. So uh, a white person and a black person who've been arrested on the same charge will appear before a judge and the judge is more likely to set a high bail for the black person because they think falsely 
that the uh, black person is more likely to be a recidivist, is more likely to go out and commit another crime. So a solutionist idea is to say, well, this is a really complicated social problem. Can we really change the minds of these judges and re-educate them? Maybe we need to get different kinds of judges, but that's going to take decades, and it's really, really hard. Maybe we can replace judges with a bail sentencing algorithm, or we can at least have an algorithm that will recommend these things in an unbiased and objective manner. So a number of companies have done this, and some jurisdictions implemented them, and fairly quickly people realized that these bail and sentencing algorithms were also biased. They were also discriminatory. And to make a long story short, and I'm building on the work of Kathy O'Neill, who's written a great book called Weapons of Math Destruction, all about this, um, what they found was that the data that the algorithm was using included things like, has someone ever been arrested before? Have they ever been arrested for drug possession? Um, and the likelihood of an African-American being arrested for drug position, possession in these jurisdictions was higher, not because they were more likely to have drugs, but because the criminal justice system was already discriminating against them. So if the data feeding into the algorithm is already biased, of course the decisions that it recommends are going to be biased. Mm -hmm. Now, how could we have made these algorithms better? I think if you had had people on that team uh, who was developing the algorithm, who were sensitive to the idea of this data that we're using, we need to understand where it comes from. We need to understand the context in which this data is coming out and also the context in which these sentencing algorithms are being used. Not just the technical problem of given this data, how do we produce certain kinds of recommendations, but how trustworthy is the data? Could we get better data? And I think, you know, I can't prove it, but I'm, I'm pretty committed to the idea that if you had a more diverse group of people involved in developing these kind of algorithms, your likelihood of foreseeing or predicting these kinds of unintended consequences or asking these kinds of questions goes up. So again, to get back to your previous question, we could train the people who write these algorithms mm. to think more broadly about where the data comes from, and that's good. Mm. We could also encourage different kinds of people, people who are interested in criminal justice, who are interested in criminal justice reform, who are interested in the sociology of incarceration, to feel like they have something to contribute. Because often those kinds of people feel like anything technical, anything data-based or quantitative is intimidating, it's scary, and I don't have anything to contribute except standing way outside. And I'm saying, give them enough training to feel confident enough to step up to, step up to the table and look inside the black boxes here. I'd like to be a devil's advocate. Absolutely. What is the difference between what we're talking today, solutionism, and kind of bridging the divide between solution approach and context approach and so on, and collaborative projects? Plain old, good old partnerships. What's the difference between bridging this gap between technology and social science and developing a true, honest, authentic, motivated collaboration where the end goal is complex and we understand everyone that's working in the collaboration understands that, you know, from the get-go, this is a complex issue and we need multiple people on the ground right from the get-go. That's a great question. I would say that there are... Two differences. Right, maybe differences is the wrong word. The ideal solution, 
<laughs> is the kind of collaboration you're talking about. Mm. But how do we get to that collaboration? Mm. You need people who are interested in developing those kinds of collaborations, mm. right? And part of the problem with solutionism is that you don't think you need the collaboration in the first place. Mm. If I think there's an app for that, I just have to build the app, Yeah. right? I don't need to ask anyone else. And in fact, it's leaner and more efficient and quicker and easier just to develop the app mm. and not bring all these other people into the, into the conversation. So the question is, number one, how do we get people to recognize they need to have these kinds of collaborations? Mm. And the, num the second question is, even if you have these collaborations, no matter how well-meaning and open-minded individuals are, if you're speaking different languages, that makes collaborations really difficult. Mm. So if you have someone who is very attuned to, say, the criminal justice system and understands a lot about it, but has never really done anything data-oriented, trying to talk to a data scientist who's designing a bail sentencing algorithm, they're going to be speaking different languages, and it's going to be difficult for them to bridge those gaps. And I think in particular, um, in our society, people with quantitative or mathematical or technological skill uh, are seen as having this kind of expertise that intimidates a lot of other people. Mm. So you could have you know, an activist who's been working in criminal justice for 30 years, but when they encounter someone with a bachelor's degree in computer science, they're intimidated mm. and, and they're, they're worried about how they come across. Mm. So I think that to reach these kinds of effective collaborations that you're talking about, you need to help the people who don't have this technical skill to speak that language and speak it with confidence and say, no, you know what, I understand. I may not be able to program this algorithms, mm. but I understand what data means. I understand what you're doing with it, right? So if I can capture your vision, your vision is to train or if not encourage diverse people to feel like they can take part in tech projects in multiple different types of technology-driven projects or any kind of projects. Yeah, absolutely. I'd actually go a step further. I'd say that we need to encourage as broad a community as possible to have access to these tools, right? And I think in particular, people who tend to have been shut out, women, uh, socially and economically disadvantaged people uh, in particular, who have for decades, if not hundreds of years, not been given places of pride at the table in this. Mm. Um, and not only do we need to have a place for them, we need them to have the confidence to engage and articulate and add their vision right? We need to say that these are tools that are available to everybody and your ability to use these tools will make the resulting solutions better. So maybe to circle back to the very first question, mm -hmm. you know, the problem isn't solutionism per se, because we're looking for solutions. The problem is if there's only a small elite group of people mm -hmm. who have access to a certain small toolkit, and we organize society around the assumption that only this group of people and only those tools will solve our problems, we will continue to fail. Mm. 
the larger a group of people we can have access to those tools, the better. And I think they will reshape those tools so that we will have much more adequate ways of addressing some of the most pressing, difficult, wicked social problems we face. Awesome talking to you, Nick. Awesome talking to you, Steph. You've been listening to Wise with Nicholas King, Associate Professor at McGill Bioethics. Bioethics, Epidemiology, Institute for Health and Social Policy, lots of other stuff. There you go. Do we really care about it? You're just a diverse thinker. That's me. All, that's you. All, all right here in one guy. You're a human. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and that's what counts.